All right, good morning, Story Church. How are we doing here in the Museum District? We good? All right, good crowd today, starting off the new year right. I see you're all trying to live up to those resolutions, like get to church more. There's nothing better than church and gyms in the month of January. Uh, (laughs) Typically, uh, attendance spikes uh, slightly. Uh, Maybe not so much on a day like today with the rain, but everybody's trying to get right again in January. So happy New New Year to all of you. Happy New Year to those of you joining us online, as well as our family over at Timber Grove. Uh, worshiping this morning at 8200 Washington Avenue. We love y'all, and uh, we're so glad you're part of the story today. If you don't know me yet, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. Our mission is to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus. Now, if you're a religious person, you still have a place to belong here, don't worry. But um, really, the folks that God has called and compelled us to speak to and reach The most are folks that have more questions than answers where it comes to the Bible and and religion in general and Christianity in particular, and uh, just a lot of doubts and skepticism. So so that's who we're trying to uh, speak to, and that's you in any way, even if you call yourself a Christian, but you're still just not sure about church or about the Bible for some reason. Hey, this is the place for you, and I am, we together as a community are so glad that you're here today, whether it's in person or online or over at uh, Timber Grove. So um, you're coming at a, at a great time. We are in the early stages of a message series, um, and, and it is a series that is called uh, uh, A Physician and the Facts. So this is a, a whole different take on the message series concept, okay? So this is a 22-week exploration of the book of Luke, by far the longest series of messages that we've ever done before. Usually they're six, seven, maybe eight weeks long, but we're sitting with this whole book of Luke because we love Luke that much, and Luke really speaks to the heart of the skeptic because Luke uh, was not like every other writer of scripture. He was not a Jewish man. He was not like an insider. He was the only Gentile author of scripture and lots of other things set him apart as well that I'll talk about in a minute. We just love Luke as far as how he intersects with our mission. Now, um, there's a couple of things I want everybody to know before we get any further about this series. I want you to know first, we're hoping that as a part of this series, everyone in our community can read through the book of Luke together. So that's why we're providing these daily reading guides. This is new to our community as well. A lot of churches have daily reading guides, and, and uh, we're, we're taking our first uh, foray into that world by, by trying to read through this whole book together. Now, if you have not started yet, and you see we're already, you know, one month in, already halfway through chapter four of Luke, and you're thinking, well, I give up. I, there's no way I'll catch up. Look, that's four and a half chapters. Like, you could start now, and be done by the end of my message and probably get more out of that than you would out of my message anyway. So if that's what you want to do for the next 25 minutes or so, go for it. Um, but it really doesn't take that long to catch up. And these reading, daily readings are very short. I just want us to read this whole book together and reflect on what we're reading. And especially if it's in terms of our groups and things like that, um, that are meeting. All right. So the second thing I want everybody to know is that we're going through this series of 22 weeks and breaking it up into five volumes. There's five major themes in Luke. And this, uh, the second volume is what we're into now. And this is the theme called His Name is Jesus. Uh, and this is about the identity of Jesus, what he really came to do for us, who he came to be for us. And so everything pretty much hinges on this question. So that's what we're going to be digging into today. All right. So to reset the table in the first century 
um, somewhere in or around present-day Turkey, there, there lived a man named Luke, real man, not made up mythological fiction guy, like this was a real man who uh, was probably a Roman citizen, definitely a Gentile, not a Jewish man. Um, he somehow latched on to the movement of Jesus, which is extraordinary because all the first Christians pretty much were Jews. Luke was not. Not only did he become a Christian, he became a leader within the Christian movement. He became an author of the Christian scriptures, as I mentioned earlier, the only one who authored the Bible, part of the Bible, without being a Jewish man. All right? So very interesting figure. Not only that, but he was also a physician, a medical doctor by trade. So we know some things about Luke then. We know that he was a man who valued research. I mean, in first century terms, they didn't really have scientists, professional scientists back then. But if there were professional scientists, Luke would have been a part of that community. And that, that, that skill set is borne out in how he goes about writing the gospel of Luke. So his gospel is so meticulously written and researched that as a historian, Luke stands out among all other ancient historians of his time as the most accurate ancient historian on record. And it's not because no one's like tried to catch him in a mistake, because believe me, there are many, many and have been many researchers and secular historians that would love nothing more than to find problems with the Bible and with Luke in this case, and they've tried. But no historical claim of all the many hundreds of towns and villages he properly located, um, historical figures and political leaders he properly named, um, other kinds of cultural and religious events that he situated in the right time and place. All of these historical um, claims made by Luke have been proven true. None of them have been disproven. It's an extraordinary thing. Just from a purely historical perspective, Luke really does stand out. So we think this man is, uh, is worthy of, of our time, at least 22 weeks of our, of our time together. And so we're going through this book bit by bit. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most important events that took place in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. You may not think of it in the top three or four events of his life, but absolutely you should. We're talking today about the baptism of Jesus and why the baptism of Jesus matters immensely for us today. So if we are properly understanding the baptism of Jesus, it would change everything in our mindset today. Y'all have study guides that you were handed when you came in, I hope. If you didn't grab one when you came in, you can mosey on back and get one if you'd like. Um, those might help you follow along with our readings and with the points we're making in today's message. I'm gonna start reading today in Luke chapter three. Luke chapter three, verse two is where I'll begin. And if you're an A-plus student this morning and actually reading from your Bible, I applaud you. And the heavens applaud you. I love to see people actually reading from a Bible. That's great. That's the way it ought to be, I think. But uh, nevertheless, you can also follow along on screens and on the study guides if that's your preference. I'm going to skip around a little bit. Verses 2 and 3, and then verses 7 and 8, and then verses 21 to 23. <clears throat> Here we go. Verse 2. The Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan River, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John said to the crowds, according, uh, I'm sorry, to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? 
produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, skip ahead to verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as Jesus was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. All right. So Jesus and John were cousins or relatives of some sort. We know that Mary, Jesus's mama, and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mama, were relatives. It's kind of a vague term in Aramaic or Greek, and so, so it's hard to know exactly how they were related, but Jesus and John were related. John the Baptist was about six months older than Jesus. Um, and so uh, I guess that's right, three to six months older than Jesus. So Elizabeth was a, a trimester or two ahead of Mary, okay? So these boys probably grew up together. They probably worked and played together, went to school together. Uh, John, who was called to ministry, um, began his ministry later in life like Jesus did. This was not uncommon. Most rabbis began their ministries after the age of 30. And so John had been preaching a baptism of repentance for six months by the time Jesus uh, sort of inaugurated his uh, ministry. Okay, so let's talk about John for a second as he plays such an important role. John, who's called John the Baptist, although really we should call him John the Baptizer because it's not like he was a Baptist, all right? It's not like, it's not, I, sometimes I'm like picturing John like a Southern Baptist in like a plaid suit or something, polyester tie, I don't know. But like, not a Southern Baptist, he's like a baptizer. And he was branded as the baptizer because in some ways he invented it. Now there are Old Testament sort of foreshadowings of what became baptism. There's like washing rituals and, and cleansing rituals with water in the Old Testament, for sure. Nothing like what John was introducing with this, and, and God the Father told him, go and baptize in this way. So this was sort of a new movement that had been inaugurated by, by John. John was never one to um, sort of march to everyone's beat. Like he, he always did his own thing in his own way. His daddy was a priest, Zechariah was a Hebrew priest. In fact, most of the men in his family tree before him had been priests. And so believe me when I tell you, there was a ton of pressure on John the baptizer to grow up and become a priest like his daddy. Ton of pressure. And some of y'all, I talk to a lot of men a lot of times that are in family businesses or whatever, and there's just some families that have expectations about what men in this family grow up to do. John faced the same pressure, but apparently John was not about that life as a priest. He did not see himself in a proper priestly robe, teaching his messages in the temple like a proper priest or in the synagogue even like a proper priest might. John instead made his own clothes. What kind of man makes his own clothes? Out of camel hair, no less, and leather straps. He ate locusts and honey. He, 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 anytime he preached, he went as far away from the organized religion buildings as he could, like as far away from the temple, as far away from the synagogues. He went out into the wild, into nature, 
to preach. And amazingly, the people would leave their cities and towns and go out into the wilderness with him to hear him. That's how compelling his message was, which is fascinating to me as a preacher and a student of preaching. When I look at John, I'm like, this man's doing it all wrong. There's nothing strategically or tactically about John's approach to preaching that makes any sense at all. Think about how preachers like to start our sermons. We start our sermons with jokes, pleasantries, and announcements. <laughs> Not John. How did John open his message? What did he say when the people gathered? The music ended? The announcement video was over? He stood up and he said, Good morning, y'all. How are you doing? No, he didn't. He didn't. He said, You brood of vipers. You snakes. Can you imagine going to such great lengths to get you and your family out of bed on a rainy morning, Sunday morning, getting to church on time, church has no parking, finding parking, getting wet, getting here all for the Lord, because you're that good. And then you sit down and preacher stands up and he proceeds to call you and your family a bunch of snakes. It makes no sense that anyone would flock to that message. We don't like being called out typically, or we don't think we do. We don't think we like, or we don't tend to think preachers should call people out or, or Christians should call the world out. You know, we, we like to think we should all just do our own thing and be non-judgmental and love one another. We don't like being told to repent, but that, as it turns out, was the rest of John's message. After he got done calling everybody snakes, he just told them to repent over and over and over again. And, and that word repentance has such a negative connotation to it in our culture and in some cases in our churches that are slow to use words like repent because we don't want to seem hateful. We don't want to seem like we're being harsh or judgmental. Who are we to tell you to repent? We're no better than you. So, so we just leave that word out sometimes. And when the world thinks of judgmental Christians, the word repent is one of the first words that comes to mind. I know this because I'm not a good Christian and I watch television shows like The Simpsons and Saturday Night Live and, and, and gosh, others that, that I'm, they're escaping me at the moment, but where they always lampoon Christians or, or satirize Christians the same way. It's almost always a wild-eyed preacher on the sidewalk or on a milk carton with a bullhorn with a sandwich board or a cardboard sign that says what? Repent. Because that's what crazy religion looks like. Repent. Holier than thou, you know, a high and mighty organized religion telling the world it's going to hell in a handbasket. Repent is not a, nice, uh, not a nice word, all right? And so how did John and subsequently Jesus build a movement around repentance? I mean, Jesus' first sermon too was, was a lot like John's. Read Jesus' first sermon and you'll see him say, repent, his first word, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near, okay? So the world has always rejected Christians who call others to repentance, why? Because we don't like being told what to do. We'd rather be told we're okay. We'd rather be told we're amazing just the way you are, like the Bruno Mars song. <laughs> We'd rather be told that we're perfect and loved and never change. 
That's what we think we'd rather be told. But you know, those affirmations, not only are they blatantly false, but even when spoken, they never lead to change. They never lead to the betterment of anyone's lives. They never lead to a better world. Because if none of us is changing, how is all of us ever going to change as a society, as a world, right? And so if there's nothing to repent from, how will, should we expect anything to ever improve, right? Now, it's, it's interesting to me that Christians get a bad rap for calling others to repent, and, and ourselves, ourselves and others, to repent, because all repentance is, is part of the Christian solution to the problem of sin. And all sin is, is this idea that there's some target we should be aiming for. And my, uh, my understanding of sin and the biblical understanding of sin is that it's, it's that knowledge and the knowledge that we often fall short of the target that amounts to sin. And that's why I believe everyone believes in sin. Everyone believes in sin. All right, and everyone really believes we should repent of sin because it's sin. Now, how we define the particularities of what a sin is might vary from worldview to worldview to worldview, right? But everyone believes there is a target we should aim for in terms of our behaviors, morality, ethics, thoughts, actions, all of it. And, and, and that's why we use words, big, powerful words like should and shouldn't and ought, and ought not. These are words that imply there is a standard. There is a target, right? Everyone believes this, religious or not, Christian or not. So in the Jewish framework, for example, we find the concept of sin being basically akin to, to missing the mark of the law of Moses. This is a overgeneralization, but the law of Moses is the target. Missing the law of Moses is to miss the mark, is to sin. And the Jewish framework's response or, or solution to sin is basically repent of that sin, uh, follow the law of Moses, and in the traditional historic faith, you would offer a sacrifice or an offering to God, whether it's grain or a blood offering of some kind in the temple, usually. Okay? That's how the Jewish framework deals with the problem of sin. The Muslim framework is similar but different. In the Muslim um, uh, worldview, the problem of sin comes from disobedience. Disobedience unto the word of Allah, according to the Quran. And the solution for uh, the problem of sin is really threefold. First, become a Muslim. Like that's, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not disparaging the religion. I'm telling you what they would tell you. It's like become a Muslim, become a part of the Muslim faith. Stop sinning, that's step two. That seems pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty good idea. Stop sinning, but, but that's a serious thing because if you don't stop sinning, you can't be forgiven for sins that are intentionally repeated, which is a pretty big deal if you believe that. It's a lot of, a lot of fear in that, I would think. And then third, uh, so you become a Muslim, you, you, you stop sinning, and third is you do more good things than bad. Because every good act, like when you say the right prayers or when you spend enough time in the Quran or, or help a neighbor, every good act erases one of your bad acts. That's legitimately what um, the Muslim faith teaches. Now, uh, take that or, or leave it. That's their understanding of sin and the solution to it. Now, it's not just religious people, though, is it? Secular people have a concept of sin. 
Secular people have an ideal. Like, think about secular progressives or like um, progressive humanists, kind of, you know, like that world. And it's extremely religious in its language and how it, how it lives and speaks in the world. Like the standard, when they use the word should or ought, they're usually talking about things like diversity, equity, and inclusion, or tolerance, things like that, right? That's the standard. We should, be, we should value diversity. If we're not diverse, we're missing the mark. We're sinful. If we're not equitable and having these kinds of equal outcomes, we're Missing the mark, that's sin by definition. If, if we're not being inclusive of all people, especially, you know, uh, oppressed groups, minority groups, if we're not being ultimately inclusive, then that is sin. They don't use the word sin. In fact, they might say using the word sin is a sin because it's not inclusive. <laughs> but uh, that concept is the same. And the solution in this framework is pretty brutal. The solution to sin in this framework, as best as I can tell, as someone who used, I used to be in this world, like I used to be that, that I'm describing to you now for over a decade, and I can tell you it's fairly merciless. To deal with this sin, you have to out it. Out the sinner, shame the sinner, disparage or cancel the sinner until... They stop being, you know, intolerant or whatever they're being and just do better. That's the mantra of this world is do better, do better. Just do better. Enough with the thoughts and prayers. Do better. Do better. I've heard this so many times. Like enough with the apologies. Do better. Think about how religious that is as a framework. That's how this mindset, this world deals with the problem that we call uh, sin. All right? So I believe everyone believes in sin, but we all uh, believe in a different solution to the problem. Now, for Christians, the target is what we sang about earlier, holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God is the target that we're aiming at. Jesus said, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And a synonym for that, in some of your Bibles, it'll say, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, and leaving all of us going, Really? Really? (laughs) Be perfect? That's the target? How can anyone attain uh, or reach or hit that target? So that creates the problem of sin in our framework. Now, our solution to sin is what really, I I believe, sets the gospel apart from every other religion and worldview. Our solution to sin is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And to have faith in Jesus Christ, as we're going to unpack this in a minute, we're going to see, to have faith in Jesus Christ requires some measure of repentance. And so repentance still today plays a key role in our uh, dealing with sin, in our overcoming sin and its power. Repentance isn't everything. It's not like in other worldviews where you repent and just do better, and then you're released from sin. No, there's more going on here. But to really walk by faith in Jesus, repentance is a key first step. Not just a first step either. It goes uh, on as part of your journey for your whole life, I think. Now, since the days of uh, John the baptizer until now, baptism has always been about repentance. For John, baptism was all about repentance. For us today, it's partially about repentance. And I want to explain what I mean there. But let's think about that day and Jesus being baptized, okay? So if 
If for John, baptism is all about repentance, why did Jesus need to be baptized? This presents a conundrum for Christians. If you really, if you think it through, Jesus was sinless, we believe. That's pretty much a linchpin of our faith. Jesus was without sin. So what did he have to repent from? What did he have to confess? Why was he baptized? Jesus himself tells us very clearly why he was baptized. You don't have to make up an answer or, or you know, just uh, uh, trust what anyone else might say. Jesus says in Matthew's account of this same event of his baptism, Matthew 3, verse 14 and 15, John tried to deter Jesus from being baptized. John was like, bro, I don't, I, I, I'm just me and you're you. It's like, I'm, I can't baptize you. He said, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So he clears it up right there. Clear as day, right? Everybody knows what that means. (laughs) Why you got to be baptized, Jesus? To fulfill all righteousness. Well, okay, let's go to brunch. It's like, nope. What does that mean? To fulfill all righteousness literally means to do every righteous thing. To do every righteous thing. Or to perfectly obey the will of the Father. And so it is to so fully submit and surrender yourself to the will of the Father that you do what he says, no matter what. Even when it might not make sense in a moment. Jesus is like, let this be so for now. It's got to be this way for now, right? He's like, this may not, may not make sense for now. It may not compute for now. But Jesus knew that the Father had sent John to baptize, as we read earlier. The Father sent John to baptize in the wilderness. And Jesus and John knew why the Father had sent the Son. And this is why 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21 is one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. If you want a memory verse today, this might be the one. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Christ who had no sin to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. John the Baptist put it a little more simply than this when he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So for both of these men, to baptize Jesus in the River Jordan was the fulfillment of all righteousness in that it was perfect obedience unto the Father. What I want everyone here to see is that something in the universe to borrow a word from that like secular progressive world I used to live in, something in the cosmos, in the universe, something in our framework shifted seismically the moment Jesus' body was plunged under the water in the Jordan. Something changed forever that has dramatic effects on your life and mine 2,000 years later. Something shifted in that moment because When Jesus was baptized, we're told he was baptized unto death. This was the beginning of his death process. This was the beginning of his sacrifice on the cross, which would come a little bit later. The baptism was the beginning of it all, of his sacrifice, right? And so when Jesus, from his baptism to the cross, took our sin on himself, God, in a moment in time, chose to look at him 
like God could and maybe should rightly look at me today. God looked at Jesus and allowed Jesus to be treated in such a way as though Jesus lived the life I've been living. As though Jesus said the things I've said, as though he he thought the thoughts I've thought, as he did the things I've done. God allowed Jesus to be treated like the rest of us rightly could have been. God looked at Jesus for just a moment in time. The father saw the son in a way that he could and maybe should rightly have seen me. Now, the beautiful flip side of that is that because of how the tables have turned, this gracious act of Jesus' obedience on the cross, taking our sin on himself, now God has made a way to see us He sees us, you and me, as though we have lived the life Jesus lived. He looks at you and me like he should have looked at Christ according to the merits. He looks at us today like he could have looked at Jesus then. What an amazing Miracle that is, that we are free from our sin. The chains of our slavery are broken, that the power of sin is overcome because of God's righteous sacrifice in Christ on the cross. Now, this is unlike anything else that any other framework, worldview, or religion has ever offered. And repentance is still a part of what we are about. But the why behind repentance has shifted a bit. Unlike every other religion and worldview, we, we no longer repent so that God might love us. We're compelled to repent because we know he already loves us. We don't repent of our sin in the hopes that God might forgive us. We repent because in Christ he already has forgiven us. So how could we not respond with repentance? It's a whole different framework. It's a whole different approach. It's an entirely different attack on sin and evil. And that's exactly what, what happened when Jesus was baptized. The message here is that no matter what a sinner you've been, how sinful you feel right now, you're fully covered by God, and he sees you as though you've lived the righteous life of Christ. By his grace, you're his daughter, you're his son. Now, Luke's account of Jesus' baptism is only two verses long. But if you were reading closely or listening intently, you either saw or heard something extraordinary happen in these two verses. You saw something that, from a scriptural standpoint, is rare, you saw all three persons of the, what we call the Godhead, the Trinity. Blessed Trinity. We just sang about that here. Um, holy, holy, holy is a great song, but, but it's confusing. If you don't know how Christians conceive of God, we, we worship one God. There is only one God, but this God is made manifest or reflected in three persons that have unique and special roles in our lives. Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is one of the very few times in Scripture that all three show up at the same time and place. And that all three demonstrate their roles in our lives today. In just two verses, we see this. It's extraordinary. 
So the father showed up speaking from heaven. This is my son. You are my son and I love you. I am well pleased with you. Extraordinary claim. And the reason this matters is because Later in the Gospels, you'll find Jesus promising believers and his disciples in particular that one day God will say something very similar to each one of us. No matter what track record we bring to the pearly gates with us, God will see us and say, my son, my daughter, I love you. I'm well pleased with you. Not because of your own righteous actions, but because of Christ's righteousness on the cross imputed to you for your benefit. He sees you in the best possible light. So the Father showed up, and what we find in the Father's voice from heaven is that God actually, in spite of what you might have heard, is for you. God is for you. It's not against you, fighting you, making it hard for you, condemning you. The God of Scripture is for you. And he speaks from heaven for all to hear, this is my son, this is my daughter, he is for you. The son shows up, obviously, at the baptism. He shows up in an act of righteous obedience, willful obedience under the father's will. It's like he shows up to be baptized and, and, and in the flesh to be one of us. That's why the Bible describes the son as God with us. God, the, 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 the son is God with us, Emmanuel. We just talked about this at Christmas. God the Father speaking from heaven, my son, my daughter, God for us. God the Son walking on earth, plunging beneath the waters, hanging on the cross, God with us. And then we also have this third person of the Trinity showing up on the scene in these two verses. The Spirit of God, the awkward third wheel of the Trinity, as many of us have unfortunately come to know him. Uh, the Spirit of God shows up, Luke says, in bodily form, descending from heaven like a dove. Now, we have often miscommunicated a lot about the Holy Spirit, not least of which is this idea that the Spirit was a dove or is a dove. It's not the case. Luke, the Bible never says the Spirit is a dove. All right? The Bible says the Spirit descends like a dove. So I want you to think for a moment about how a dove descends. With one disclaimer, there are men in the room right now who are picturing themselves in a field with a gun and a dog, and I want you to not think about that, okay? Dove season's almost over. I want you to think about the beauty and grace of a dove in flight. Of course, when we think about a dove descending or even ascending, we think about gentleness, something unthinkably pure, and sweet, soft even. Jesus, when he sent his disciples out, he said, go and be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. And if you're not acquainted with the Holy Spirit, you might, one of the reasons might be you've gotten the impression from what you've seen of spirit-filled Christians on TV shows, like I mentioned earlier, or maybe what you've heard from some Christians in your own life, that the Holy Spirit is some kind of a beast, who possesses people and just like makes them do the craziest things and say the wildest things. And that's intimidating to you. And so you keep the spirit at arm's length. And I just, to that, I say, heaven forbid, like God forbid that we, we keep two thirds of the Trinity close and one third at a distance because we're intimidated or afraid of relinquishing control. 
look, the, the Bible, especially in the New Testament and passages like this, portrays the, the Holy Spirit not as some kind of a wild animal that's going to somehow, you know, just dominate your, yourself and, and cause you to relinquish. No, no, it's, the Holy Spirit is gentle. He still descends like he did then on the day of Jesus' baptism. He descends gently, sweetly, beautifully, innocently. And purely, and sometimes it still amazes me, since I converted really in earnest to Christianity in 2013, I, I keep finding myself brought to tears in worship. And I'm still amazed by this because for years I rolled my eyes at emotional Christians in worship. Like when they would raise their hands or when they pretended to cry or speak in tongues or all these kinds of stuff that I thought was kind of fake. And over the top, I would roll my eyes and pretend I had to use the bathroom. I went to the bathroom six or seven times a service, probably, in those days of my life, especially at those spiritual churches, you know? And now the right song comes on, or y'all sing loud enough, and I am a wreck up here in the front row, tears down my face. I'm not an emotional guy, really. I'm not a crier, really. But when the Spirit moves, I can't not feel his gentleness, his sweetness, his beauty, his, his, his softness with me. Because maybe some, somehow deep down, I feel like I deserve just something rough and angry and violent from above, but that's not his way. He comes sweetly and gently. If you've never experienced the spirit of God, I want to, I want to say you're not alone in Christianity even, because my experience with American Christians is that we kind of go two-thirds of the way with the Trinity generally, especially in the Methodist world I just came out of, and Presbyterians and Lutherans, all these, you know, the frozen chosen kinds of Christians, you know, it's like, like we love the Father, we love the Son, and there's the Spirit too, you know, it's like, um, but it's not like your soul's in danger, but you really are missing out on something beautiful. And it's not a complicated formula. Really, it's as simple as this. I mean, your acknowledgement of the Father and Son leads to your access to the Spirit. And when, when you publicly acknowledge the Father and Son with your mouth, with your words, um, the, the Holy Spirit is, is made accessible to you. And so it's really not that complicated. It takes a little bit of humility and maybe some getting used to, but I just don't want any of you or us to miss out on any of these manifestations of God with us because in the Father, we have God being for us. In the Son, we have God being with us. And in the Spirit, we have God being in us. And when we understand this fully, it's, it's pretty astounding how covered we suddenly feel, like covered on every front, we have God, almighty God, for us, with us, and in us. Like that creates an impenetrable, formidable shield and weapon against the foe. You are the enemy's worst nightmare. You're evil's arch enemy when you understand God and his completeness, Father, Son, and Spirit for you, with you, and in you. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ when you understand all of who God is for us. Sometimes out of fear or ignorance or whatever, we sell God short and we miss out on something beautiful. What baptism is for us today is an acknowledgement of God the Father who is for us, God the Son who is with us, and God the Spirit who is in us. 
And if you've been baptized before, maybe uh, it was when you were a baby. How many baby baptisms we got in the room right now? About half the room, maybe a little bit more. Whenever we talk about, hey, remember when you were baptized? You're like, nope. That's a shame because of what the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father have done for you and what that means. So I was compelled this week to think about offering everyone here who's been baptized an opportunity to remember your baptism. What we're going to do at the end of this service is the chance to do just that. During communion, whether it's in your own headspace and prayers to reflect on what your baptism means, or whether you want to come forward and join me in the middle up here after you receive communion, or you can, if over at Timber Grove, I'm sure Kale or someone would love to pray with you, maybe uh, during or after the service, but, but over here, we're going to have this uh, opportunity for everyone who's been baptized to come and remember your baptism. I'll just put a little water on your hand and say a few words of remembrance. I won't re-baptize anybody. We won't do that. We think once is enough, even if you were just a little infant. We think once is enough. We don't re-baptize. I will say, if you've never been baptized, you're not sure why, or you're done with all those excuses and you're ready to be baptized today, come and talk to me about that. If not during the service, then afterward. I'd love to baptize you right now. I can't plunge you in the water. You probably didn't bring a change of clothes. And I don't really have a big enough tub today, but I will. Uh, I would love to have that conversation with you. Baptism for us is the sweetest thing. It is the remembrance of everything Christ did for us, everything the Father has done for us, everything the Spirit can do for us. And I want all of that for you. More than that, God wants all of that for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. Father, we thank you for seeing us as worthy of salvation through the right and gracious act of your Son. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to submit yourself unto the will of the Father on our behalf so that we might be the righteousness of God. We thank you, Spirit, sweet, gentle Spirit, for always making yourself available to us for coming to us, Lord, and indwelling us, filling us with hope, joy, peace, and love, kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and self-control, equipping us for every battle that the enemy might bring our way, filling us with wisdom. We thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for all that you are, and we pray in your powerful name. Amen.